Hello, I'm Alvin Wells. I'm here at the ACR National Meeting in San Diego, California. I would like to share with you some exciting areas that I've seen here at the medicine, uh, at the meeting, and that's actually involving around telehealth and telemedicine. As you're looking at where the future is going to be, I really am convinced that the days of seeing a doctor in the office are going to be limited. That many of our patients, whether in rheumatology or primary care, will be connected away with us virtually. So look into telehealth, telemedicine, and telerheumatology. This year at the meeting, there's been some showcase about several different things. Yesterday was an abstract talking about how using telehealth to look at patients with gout. They had a program when they had patients who had gout. Once they were hospitalized and treated for the gout, been using the internet, connecting with nurse practitioners and nurses to show they can decrease the gout flare and other kind of long-term benefits as well as far as less joint damage, kidney disease as well. There's also a poster talking about in areas where there's unmet need, like in Alaska. So an abstract talking about the Alaskan native population that showed, because there's not many rheumatologists there, how they've connected with the other rheumatologists in the region to do things remotely. And also now, one of my biggest interests is working and talking about doing tele-ultrasound. This has been spearheaded by the obstetrician and gynecologist. So if you have a remote site that a patient can take an ultrasound image, and that image can be interpreted remotely, by example, by a rheumatologist. That can be done live. That can be done also uh, not in live time. It can be done offline. So I think doing telehealth and telemedicine, particularly when it revolves around for us as rheumatologists, tele-rheumatology, and doing tele-ultrasound is going to make a dramatic difference. So it's exciting to be here at the meeting uh, to share this information with you. And if you want some more information, I welcome you to visit roomnow.com. Hey, this is Dr. Artie Kavanaugh on Room Now. And I'd just like to remind you all of an opportunity to come to an educational activity, and that is RWCS, the Rheumatology Winter Clinical Symposium. This will be February 7th to 10th, 2018 in Maui. Got a great lineup of faculty, great chance to catch up with colleagues, discuss clinical issues, talk to the people who are doing the research in the field, learn a lot, and enjoy and relax and remember why you liked rheumatology in the first place. So we'll see you at RWCS 2018. This is Artie Kavanaugh for Room Now. I'm Cassie Calabrese coming to you from day three of ACR 2017 in San Diego. I just left the poster hall where there are many excellent abstracts on immune-related adverse events from checkpoint inhibitor therapy, a topic near and dear to my heart, and I was in particular interested in an abstract uh, by Noha Abdelwahab from MD Anderson. Um, her and her group presented a study that was a systematic review of patients with pre-existing rheumatic autoimmune diseases who go on to get checkpoint inhibitor therapy, a very important topic, a very paucity of data. And they did a systematic review of the literature, found 30 patients with rheumatic diseases, mostly rheumatoid arthritis. All of them had melanoma. Most of them went on to get ipilimumab, a CTLA-4 inhibitor, for their cancer. And they looked at who flared, who didn't, and turns out a third of them flared their underlying rheumatic disease. A quarter of them went on to get IRAEs in other systems, and about 13% of them experienced both. 
It seems that if the rheumatic disease was not well controlled at the time of checkpoint inhibitor initiation, they had a higher chance of flaring their disease. And there was no increased risk of getting an IRAE, whether they had an underlying rheumatic disease or not. There was a small number of patients, but this is such an interesting topic and a great need for further studies, and I think this will help us manage these patients down the road. For more, go to roomnow.com. Hi, I'm Jack Cush, executive editor of roomnow.com. I'm coming to you from ACR 2017 here in San Diego. We're on the exhibit floor and we're at the Room Now booth and I'm here with Pete Salzman. Pete is Vice President of U.S. Immunology at Eli Lilly and Company. And I've asked Pete to come by so we could talk about I think what I think is a really interesting issue. So Pete, this issue in my mind, and it's come up with this new data about pain as a differentiator with a jacketed that you're developing, baricitinib. And you know, when drugs are being developed, um, we as advisors and and, and leaders in the community often are looking for distinguishing features, just as you are. Yeah. And we look at the safety data, we look at the efficacy data, we look, we ask about costs, you know, and it, it ends up being yet another of a long list. So just recently, you know, there's this new data that's come up about pain as a differentiator, which is, I find surprising for um, um, this uh, disease-modifying drug, uh, baricitinib. So tell me the story behind it and how you think it's going to play out. Yeah, thanks for the question. So first of all, uh, the data that you're referring to is from our pivotal phase three trial, which compared baricitinib to adalimumab to placebo in CD-MARD IR patients. So mm -hmm. that was the population. Mm -hmm. And it had all the standard uh, scales that you would think of, ACR scores, CDI, all those kind of things, lab values. What we noticed as we looked at the components of the ACR was a differentially positive effect in pain, we thought. So um, Peter Taylor and uh, others at uh, Lilly conducted a post-hoc analysis where they really tried to tease that out. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that compared to adalimumab and also compared to placebo, baricitinib resulted in a larger decrease in pain, and that decrease in pain happened faster. And interestingly, for those patients who had the most pain at baseline, they had the largest improvement. So when you looked at those who had a pain response, was there anything about that group that was distinguishing compared to other patients? Did they have more inflammatory disease? Did they have more damage? Did they have more disability? Was there anything that distinguished them? Yeah. Great question. So um, the people who had uh, higher pain at baseline, I already mentioned that, and certainly people, who, this was a group that was, uh, you know, a pretty active disease if you look at the inclusion criteria, mm -hmm. but you're right, among those people who had the most active uh, inflammation, they also had the most pain and therefore the most pain relief. But among people who um, had their inflammatory signs improve, so just all the typical things as simple as uh, swollen joints or CRP, um, we controlled, or Peter Taylor and his group controlled for that, and when you, when you took out that which they called the sort of direct pain reduction, because you'd assume that if you reduce inflammation, you right. reduce pain, right? right? There was still this component that was unexplained that was the indirect pain relief, and that part, uh, that pain relief was pretty substantial. It was about 50% of the pain relief could not be explained by the improvement in um, inflammation. So I would guess at Lilly, when you see these kind of results, you say, quick, let's look at our past data, let's look at dose-related effects on pain, and does this extrapolate to other studies? How does this play out uh, by dose? 
Yeah, so um, the differences by dose, so this particular study only had the four milligram, um, but you can look in other uh, studies, and you typically see that baricitinib relative to placebo in the other studies is going to show this impact. We haven't yet teased out the difference two milligram versus four milligram, okay. um, but, uh, but it's an important question. I agree. Do you think this actually is going to tell you maybe this is a drug that will do something for pain and work in pain models, like dysmenorrhea, dental extraction, post-operative pain, whatever. Is that something that you want to look at at this point? Or right now it's still just a curiosity? I would say it's, not a, it's neither a curiosity nor a broad-based uh, pain development program. I think, you know, pain and RA is an important topic. I think Very you'd big. agree. And, um, you know, during the Q&A uh, after Peter's presentation, um, someone mentioned, you know, a, a rheumatologist mentioned, you know, we all have these patients who their swelling gets a lot better on exam, but they still have a fair amount of pain. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that could be the type of patient who's really going to benefit from this differential impact to baricitinib. So we do plan to further explore how baricitinib can help patients with rheumatoid arthritis with pain, also psoriatic arthritis because we're studying in psoriatic arthritis where you may have a similar situation. So from a practitioner standpoint and one who represents a lot of rheumatologists I can tell you that you know we do get frustrated when trying to find the distinguishing features and and often wonder is it even possible so this is a novel finding one that's encouraging and I, uh, I congratulate you for finding it the finding it the question is going to be how far can you take it we're gonna wait and see. Yeah absolutely I agree Jack. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm at the ACR 2017 at the Room Now booth. We're starting to wind down today and I have a really interesting abstract to talk to you about, number 3377. This is from the early RA cohort, Esquire, from France. And there's over 400 patients in this cohort. And what they wanted to do is look at radiographic change when they're using various drugs. We know that if we get the disease under control, that anything could be a DMARD. If we suppress inflammation, we might improve joint damage. What's different about this study and contradictory to a lot of other things we've heard is that corticosteroids actually were a poor predictor and had more x-ray damage. We could explain it by the fact that only the worst patients got corticosteroids, but if you look at the ULAR guidelines, corticosteroids have been used as an add-on in early RA for a long time in Europe, even though the guidelines are recent. So I really wonder if they're channeling bias or confounding by indication, but it makes us think twice, try to control the inflammation with our proper DMARDs and maybe save the steroids for later. Who knows? Thanks from Runao. Hi, it's Dr. Janet Pope. I'm back at Room Now, ACR 2017. I wanted to talk about interstitial lung disease and rheumatoid arthritis. So there's several uh, abstracts at this meeting, and they're saying things like in about 156 patients, up to one in four of them have ILD, and cytokines are increased, uh, such as MMP3 and some other cytokines. Interestingly, IL-6R isn't increased. But if you really think of how common interstitial lung disease is in our rheumatoid arthritis patients that's clinically relevant, I think it's far lower than that. And I look forward to you having a poll on that and giving us the answer. However, along that vein, there were two studies of looking at, after RA, a billing code of interstitial lung disease. And one seemed to suggest that interstitial lung disease incidence in rheumatoid arthritis, although low, was the same in TNF inhibitors as avidacept. 
However, there was another study that looked at a large database, market scan, and some of the large big data, and found that abatacept seemed to have less new interstitial lung disease compared to TNFs and compared to some of the other comparators. So I think the word's not out. We do have patients with interstitial lung disease, and I think more will come over time. Thank you. El website y, y por favor compártanlo con sus amigos, síganos en Twitter y muchas gracias. El American College of Rheumatology 2017 en San Diego, California. Eh, ha sido un congreso maravilloso hasta el día de hoy, múltiples artículos con información extensa, específicamente en el campo de la artritis psoriática. Eh, estamos esperando con ansias eh, los, los nuevos guidelines del American College of Rheumatology y el National Psoriasis Foundation en el tópico de artritis psoriática que van a ser distribuidos esta tarde, así que vamos a estar pendientes a eso. Eh, quiero hablar específicamente de algunos artículos que, que se han publicado en los últimos dos días en el componente radiográfico en la artritis psoriática, específicamente eh, un estudio con Secukinumab, el Future 5 Study, que eh, en ese estudio se incluyeron muchos, eh, 996 pacientes. Es el estudio más grande que se ha hecho hasta el momento en artritis psoriática. Y luego de 24 semanas se demostró una disminución en la progresión radiográfica en los pacientes que recibieron Secukinumab comparado con placebo. Lo mismo se reportó en dos estudios con, eh, con otros dos agentes. Uno de ellos fue otro inhibidor de la interleucina 17, Ixekisumab, y también con tofacetinib, una eh, small molecule um, jack uh, inhibitor. Ambos demostraron eficacia en reducción de eh, progresión radiográfica hasta 52 semanas. Eh, bueno, los dos estudios. Ambos estudios fueron presentados por la doctora Van der Heide yesterday, eh, en el día de ayer, disculpe, y... Y nuevamente, eh, muchas noticias en, dentro del campo de la artritis psoriática y específicamente de la, de la inhibición de, de cambios radiográficos. Así que, por favor, si desean más información, manténgase al tanto con roomnow.com. Eh, vengan, miren el, el website y, y, por favor, compártanlo con sus amigos. Síganos en Twitter y muchas gracias. Morning everyone, this is Dr. Julio Gonzalez reporting live from the American College of Rheumatology meeting in San Diego, California. And I'll, um, it's been a great congress so far, especially in the topic of psoriatic arthritis. We've had, we've heard great articles and um, I'd like to continue that trend here. Um, I'd like to report a couple um, papers that have been published, actually three studies on the topic of psoriatic arthritis and um, radiographic progression. The first one is a late breaker that was just presented this morning. It's a future five study um, on secukinumab. This is a very large study, 996 patients that um, were randomized to receive um, either 300, 150 with loading and 150 without loading, 300 with loading of secukinumab. Um, these patients were around 30% of them were TNF failure, so um, those patients were included in this study. Um, the study was carried out to 24 weeks to monitor structural progression at 16 weeks as expected, and Tegukinimab had better scores as compared to placebo, and at 24 weeks, radiographic progression was um, significantly inhibited in secukinumab as compared to placebo. Okay, the second study I want to talk about is on another IL-17 inhibitor, this time Ixekisumab. Um, there was another study this time carried out to 52 weeks. This study was presented by Dr. Van der Heide um, yesterday, and they showed um, 
that are 52 weeks in both the every two weeks and the every four weeks doses of Ixekizumab, excuse me, um, radiographic progression was um, halted um, significantly. These patients were initially on either placebo or adalimumab and were switched um, to Ixekizumab and then they got the measurements at um, 52 weeks. Um, the third study that I want to talk about on radiographic progression is on tofacitinib. So this is um, uh, a lot of news around this in the field of psoriatic arthritis, and this study was interested in the way, interesting in the way that they had an alimumab arm up to 52 weeks, and they also grouped their patients between um, CRP levels, so patients with high CRPs and patients with low CRPs or normal CRPs. What they did is that they looked at their radiographic data at 52 weeks, and when they what they saw was significant. Um, uh, diminishing or, or hardening of progression at 52 weeks in the three arms, the TOFA-5 BID, the TOFA-10 BID, and the adalimumab arm. So as expected, up to 52 weeks and diminished radiographic progression in um, the three studies. So great news in the field of psoriatic arthritis. We keep hearing good things. It's been a great congress for um, in this field, and um, specifically we're anxiously waiting the release of the new American College of Rheumatology and National Psoriasis Foundation um, criteria for arthritis today at 1 p.m. So if you're here, make sure to go check it out. And if you want to uh, learn more, make sure to um, go to roomnow.com to get the latest and greatest information as it happens. This is Len Calabrese. I'm coming at you from ACR San Diego. It's been an incredible meeting. I'd like to talk to you for a minute about uh, herpes zoster. Uh, a lot of activity here. We know the risk factors uh, for drugs, particularly the jacotinibs. A lot of this was overshadowed by the introduction of Shindrex, the new GSK uh, killed vaccine uh, coupled to a uh, adjuvant system. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people about it, and we're very excited to use it, but uh, we are cautiously concerned about uh, assessing uh, the potential for adjuvants to aggravate autoimmune disease across the image spectrum. I have no reason to suspect this other than from the data. Uh, I'm looking forward to robust studies uh, on behalf of the company that will explore this and uh, I look forward to uh, uh, offering this to my patients in a sh sense of shared and informed decision-making. Thanks. Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from Dallas, Texas, presenting today for you from ACR 2017 in San Diego, California. I love the plenary sessions. I think that they are the most high yield and they give you a lot of information in very, very small subsets, which is really nice for me. It's digestible. So I just attended a really great plenary session with Dr. Lan Dewey on the safety and efficacy of sustained remission in patients on adalimumab versus placebo. So that's something we all talk about, right? We want to know not only how do we achieve remission for our patients, but can we sustain that remission? And if so, can we do it off of medication? So this study actually is called the Ability 3, if you're interested in more information. And realistically, what they looked at is they had patients who had non-radiographic SPA, so that's using the ASAS criteria, not the New York criteria. And, what, and why is that important? That's important because we are looking at non-radiographic spondyloarthritis, not radiographic spondyloarthritis. So in general, they took 305 patients who had been on adalimumab every two weeks for 28 weeks 
Of those 305 patients who had achieved remission, they then broke it down into a placebo group of 153 patients versus a non-placebo group with continued adalimumab every two weeks, 152 patients. So we looked at a couple of things. Number one, we wanted to make sure that the safety data was still there for the patients. So there were no new safety indications for Humira based on what we already know. So that's really important. But we also wanted to know, of the patients who had achieved remission, can we sustain that remission? Well, we found that 70% of the patients who had already achieved remission on adalimumab and who stayed on adalimumab, 70% of those patients did very well, but 30% had flares. So what about the remission group that had achieved it but then had to be off of the medication who were within the withdrawal placebo group? We actually found that only 30% of those patients had no flares. So that's 70% of those patients had flares and could be reintroduced to adalimumab. So here's the caveat to that though. Once they achieved remission, they were taken off of the drug in the withdrawal phase of the study and then they were put back on adalimumab, it wasn't as effective. So it's twofold information. So it goes to show that maybe we do need to reconsider the way that we approach these patients. We need to make sure they hit clinical remission, but it's really important to have sustained remission. And partly, this may be keeping them on drug for the extended period of time. So I hope that you learned something from this session. I know I did. I always send patients and people to the plenary sessions because personally, that's where I learn the most bang for my buck. So I hope you enjoy RoomNow.com and keep checking us out for up-to-date information from ACR 2017 in San Diego, California. Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from Dallas, Texas, and I'm coming to you live from ACR 2017 in San Diego, California. So I just saw a really great poster, abstract number 1505, from Dr. Duggum and his group. And they were looking at gender biases for ankylosing spondylitis and particularly patterns of inheritance. So they looked at two different cohorts of 105 HLA B27 positive parent and offspring pairs to look not only at patterns of inheritance, but if there's a gender bias. So historically, we know that we think that mothers really do transmit this disease to patients, um, whether that be male or female offspring. But what we actually found was that the fathers had, an in, had the um, increased rate of transmission to patients. Also, interestingly, it seems to be that the sons are more affected in this particular subset than daughters. So this goes against our conventional wisdom. So it seems that not only HLA-B27 positive patients who meet New York criteria for AS, as well as radiographic damage and gender, are also transmitted with a male bias. So I hope you learned something from this. I think that realistically we need to be looking into more inheritance patterns because this challenges our conventional wisdom. So more from ACR 2017 with RoomNow.com, and I hope you're enjoying the coverage. I know I am. Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from Dallas, Texas, coming to you live from ACR 2017 in San Diego, California. There are two things that I really like to talk about when it comes to rheumatology, particularly education, in addition to actual use of ultrasound, um, which is something that I practice in clinical practice as well, but realistically, can we integrate those? So Dr. Sterling West did a fantastic 
year in review update for medical education this week. And something that he found in his study and research in this is that of the 113 rheumatology fellowship programs, these are both adult and pediatrics, that 103 of those programs actually believe that we should be training our, our future rheumatologists with ultrasound, musculoskeletal ultrasound for diagnostics as well as for doing intraarticular injections. But interestingly, when we looked at that data further, um, 30 out of 74, so not all of the programs participated in the second part of the study, but 74 of them said that, wait a second, we don't have a core curriculum. So there's a vast majority of program directors who believe that we should be using musculoskeletal ultrasound as part of our core curriculum for rheumatology, but only 30 out of those 74 and possibly out of 113 programs are actually developing those core curriculums. So I think this is a really important part of what we do in rheumatology. You know, we pride ourselves on being um, innovators and thinkers about things that we can do to improve our patients' quality of life, but also now to improve our fellowship programs. So I encourage you, if you're a program director or if you have any ideas for the supporting program directors, especially if you're the fellows, to develop some of these core curriculums, I think it's really important. You know, this is the wave of the future. It helps us with diagnosis. It helps to ensure we're putting steroids in the right spots. And I think that that's the wave of the future, regardless of reimbursement. So more from moonnow.com. Check us out. We'll be here all week at ACR 2017 in San Diego. Hello, friends. Dr. Akhirkar from Mumbai, India, here at ACR 2017. I was particularly looking at the data about new molecules in psoriatic arthritis. And ACR was really not disappointing in that respect. We have a lot of data about new molecules in psoriatic arthritis here presented. The first molecule on the horizon, tofacitinib. The opal broaden and opal beyond data presented, showing good efficacy in terms of significant difference in the patient-related outcomes. The opal balance study, 36 months data about the safety of tofacitinib, no new safety signals there. And Dr. Van der Heet presented the opal broaden study, a study with active psoriatic arthritis patients, those who are refracted to DBARDS, TNF-alpha-9, 422 patients, uh, and the study duration of 12 months, more than 90% of the patients did not have any significant radiological progression. I'm sure one year is not that big a duration for radiological progression, but it's the step in that right direction. Coming to the second molecule on the horizon in psoriatic arthritis, exekizumab, another study, a phase three spirit two study data presented, with good efficacy, with significant difference in the patient-related outcomes. Some data about abatacept in psoriatic arthritis, promising data, but, but long way to go for abatacept. Uh, as far as the established molecules are concerned, apremilast, four-year safety and efficacy data with uh, apremilast as monotherapy in psoriatic arthritis, good efficacy with uh, ACR 20, 50, 70 of 68%, 43%, 23% respectively and a PASI 75 and 50 score of 40 and 67 percent respectively. So, so good things as far as apremilast is concerned. And lastly, not to forget, secokinumab, safety data of 7769 patient years of exposure presented here at the ACR. So all in all, as things stand today, good data for psoriatic arthritis and molecules. A lot of things to expect in the future for psoriatic arthritis patients. Thank you.
Hi, I'm Bill Shergi. I'm talking to you from the American College of Rheumatology meeting in San Diego 2017. And just left a very exciting seminar on giant cell arteritis. From uh, the take-home messages from this meeting and this session in particular, giant cell arteritis is really a hot area of interest. We had three great speakers in Drs. Wyand, Carmani, and Grayson who covered the basic pathophysiology, current treatment recommendations, and imaging studies. Uh, these lectures were all superb. Uh, learned some interesting take-home points on the pathogenesis, and one of the really take-home points that I thought about afterwards was that you really are losing privileged sensitivity of the aorta in these giant cell arteritis disorders. And between the combination of increased CD4 cells, leaky portals into the vessels, failure of checkpoints, all lead to the vascular damage. But equally important for the patients in evaluating is what they happen to see in the periphery. And these are diseases uh, manifestations primarily generated by acute inflammatory products from the liver. And this is the PMR type of uh, features that we've come to recognize. Uh, when we move into treatments, certainly steroids have remained the mainstay of uh, treatment, but over the last few months, we've had the first medication actually approved for the treatment of giant cell arteritis in tocilizumab. And this has really come, become a very important topic. But one interesting area that we've come to see is this seems to focus primarily on the acute phase reactants, the PMR type activity. And even Dr. Wyand was a little uncertain as to what is going to happen long term to vascular manifestations and how closely we are going to need to follow these patients. So it's a great addition to our armamentarium. We can control the disorder. We can minimize steroid use but we still need to follow the patients, particularly for some vascular complications. And there was some sobering data of patients actually having vascular complications five to 10 years out from being uh, disease free. And lastly, uh, what we're certainly looking for uh, in, uh, in a diagnostic arena is imaging modalities over an invasive temporal artery biopsy. And we've been real excited about the ultrasound. Some initial reports on ultrasounds really showed uh, sensitivity and specificities in the 60 to 90 kind of range. But other studies have not come up with this. Also, there's MRI and PET scanning. And these two have very variable sensitivities and specificities. But in the certain study that compared biopsy two imaging modalities, it really appeared that the imaging modalities may help more than the biopsy. And there's current suggestion is if you have a firm diagnosis or a very good looking diagnosis on an imaging study in a classic clinical presentation, then perhaps you can skip the biopsy entirely. If there is a negative, bi uh, negative ultrasound or other imaging in the setting of a classic clinical history, pursue the biopsy. And if it's a negative imaging and not a classic story, then once again, you're free from doing the biopsy. So uh, with that, uh, I will close and say for more information, go to room now. Hello, I'm Alvin Wells. I'm here at the ACR National Meeting in San Diego, California. 
I would like to share with you some exciting areas that I've seen here at the medicine, uh, at the meeting, and that's actually revolving around telehealth and telemedicine. As you're looking at where the future is going to be, I really am convinced that the days of seeing a doctor in the office are going to be limited. That many of our patients, whether in rheumatology or primary care, will be connected away with us virtually. So looking into telehealth, telemedicine, and telerheumatology. This year at the meeting, there's been some showcase about several different things. Yesterday was an abstract talking about how using telehealth to look at patients with gout. They had a program when they had patients who had gout. Once they were hospitalized and treated for the gout, been using the internet, connecting with nurse practitioners and nurses to show they can decrease the gout flare and other kind of long-term benefits as well, as far as less joint damage, kidney disease as well. There's also a poster talking about in areas where there's unmet need, like in Alaska. So an abstract talking about the Alaskan native population that showed, because there's not many rheumatologists there, how they've connected with the other rheumatologists in the region to do things remotely. And also now, one of my biggest interests is working and talking about doing tele-ultrasound. This has been spearheaded by the obstetrician and gynecologist. So if you have a remote site, that a patient can take an ultrasound image, and that image can be interpreted remotely, by example, by a rheumatologist. That can be done live. That can be done also uh, not in live time. It can be done offline. So I think doing telehealth and telemedicine, particularly when it revolves around for us as rheumatologists, tele-rheumatology, and doing tele-ultrasound is going to make a dramatic difference. So it's exciting to be here at the meeting uh, to share this information with you. And if you want some more information, I welcome you to visit roomnow.com. Hey, this is Dr. Artie Kavanaugh on Room Now, and I'd just like to remind you all of an opportunity to come to an educational activity, and that is RWCS, the Rheumatology Winter Clinical Symposium. This will be February 7th to 10th, 2018 in Maui. Got a great lineup of faculty, great chance to catch up with colleagues, discuss clinical issues, talk to the people who are doing the research in the field, learn a lot and enjoy and relax and remember why you liked rheumatology in the first place. So we'll see you at RWCS 2018. This is Artie Kavanaugh for Room Now. I'm Cassie Calabrese coming to you from day three of ACR 2017 in San Diego. I just left the poster hall where there are many excellent abstracts on immune-related adverse events from checkpoint inhibitor therapy, a topic near and dear to my heart, and I was in particular interested in an abstract uh, by Noha Abdelwahab from MD Anderson. Um, her and her group presented a study that was a systematic review of patients with pre-existing rheumatic autoimmune diseases who go on to get checkpoint inhibitor therapy, a very important topic, a very paucity of data. And they did a systematic review of the literature, found 30 patients with rheumatic diseases, mostly rheumatoid arthritis. All of them had melanoma. Most of them went on to get ipilimumab, a CTLA-4 inhibitor for their cancer. And they looked at who flared, who didn't, and turns out a third of them flared their underlying rheumatic disease. A quarter of them went on to get IRAEs in other systems, and about 13% of them experienced both. It seems that if the rheumatic disease was not well controlled at the time of checkpoint inhibitor initiation, they had a higher chance of flaring their disease. And there was no increased risk of getting an IRAE, whether they had an underlying rheumatic disease or not. 
that was a small number of patients, but this is such an interesting topic and a great need for further studies, and I think this will help us manage these patients down the road. For more, go to roomnow.com. Hi, I'm Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. I'm coming to you from ACR 2017 here in San Diego. We're on the exhibit floor, and we're at the RoomNow booth, and I'm here with Pete Salzman. Pete is vice president of U.S. Immunology at Eli Lilly and Company. And I've asked Pete to come by so we could talk about I think what I think is a really interesting issue. So, Pete, this issue, uh, in my mind, and it's come up with this new data about pain as a differentiator with a jacketed that you're developing, baricitinib, and, you know, when drugs are being developed, um, we as advisors and, and, and leaders in the community often are looking for distinguishing features, just as you are. Yeah. And we look at the safety data. We look at the efficacy data. We, look, we ask about cost. You know, and it, it ends up being yet another of a long list. So just recently, you know, there's this new data that's come up about pain as a differentiator, which is I find surprising for... Um, um, this uh, disease-modifying drug, uh, baricitinib. So tell me the story behind it and how you think it's going to play out. Yeah, thanks for the question. So first of all, uh, the data that you're referring to is from our pivotal phase three trial, which compared baricitinib to adalimumab to placebo in CD-MARD IR patients. So mm -hmm. that was the population. Mm -hmm. And it had all the standard uh, scales that you would think of, ACR score, CDI, all those kind of things, lab values. What we noticed as we looked at the components of the ACR was a differentially positive effect in pain, we thought. So um, Peter Taylor and uh, others at uh, Lilly conducted a post hoc analysis where they really tried to tease that out. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that compared to adalimumab and also compared to placebo, baricitinib resulted in a larger decrease in pain. And that decrease in pain happened faster. And interestingly, for those patients who had the most pain at baseline, they had the largest improvement. So when you looked at those who had a pain response, was there anything about that group that was distinguishing compared to other patients? Did they have more inflammatory disease? Did they have more damage? Did they have more disability? Was there anything that distinguished them? Yeah. Great question. So um, the people who had uh, higher pain at baseline, I already mentioned that, and certainly people, who, this was a group that was, uh, you know, a pretty active disease if you look at the inclusion criteria, mm -hmm. but you're right, among those people who had the most active uh, inflammation, they also had the most pain and therefore the most pain relief. But among people who um, had their inflammatory signs improve, so just all the typical things as simple as uh, swollen joints or CRP, um, we controlled, or Peter Taylor and his group controlled for that, and when you, when you took out that which they called the sort of direct pain reduction, because you'd assume that if you reduce inflammation, you right. reduce pain, right? right? There was still this component that was unexplained that was the indirect pain relief, and that part, uh, that pain relief was pretty substantial. It was about 50% of the pain relief could not be explained by the improvement in um, inflammation. So I would guess at Lilly, when you see these kind of results, you say, quick, let's look at our past data, let's look at dose-related effects on pain, and does this extrapolate to other studies? How does this play out by dose? Yeah, so um, the differences by dose, so this particular study only had the four milligram, um, but you can look in other uh, studies, and you typically see that baricitinib relative to placebo in the other studies is going to uh, show this impact. We haven't yet teased out the difference two milligram versus four milligram, okay. um, but, uh, but it's an important question. I agree. Do you think this actually is going to tell you 
maybe this is a drug that will do something for pain and work in pain models, like dysmenorrhea, dental extraction, post-operative pain, whatever. Is that something that you want to look at at this point? Or right now, it's still just a curiosity. I would say it's not. A, it's neither a curiosity nor a broad-based uh, pain development program. I think you know pain in RA is an important topic. I think Very you'd big. agree. And um, you know during the Q&A uh, after Peter's presentation, um, someone mentioned. You know a, a rheumatologist mentioned. You know we all have these patients who their swelling gets a lot better on exam, but they still have a fair amount of pain. Mm -hmm. And you know that could be the type of patient who's really going to benefit from this differential impact to baricitinib. So we do plan to further explore how baricitinib can help patients with rheumatoid arthritis with pain, also psoriatic arthritis because we're studying in psoriatic arthritis where you may have a similar situation. So from a practitioner standpoint and one who represents a lot of rheumatologists, I can tell you that you know we do get frustrated when trying to find the distinguishing features and, and often wonder is it even possible. So this is a novel finding, one that's encouraging and I, uh, I congratulate you for finding it. Finding it. The question is going to be how far can you take it? We're going to wait and see. Yeah, absolutely. I agree, Jack. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm at the ACR 2017 at the Room Now booth. We're starting to wind down today, and I have a really interesting abstract to talk to you about, number 3377. This is from the early RA cohort, Esquire, from France. And there's over 400 patients in this cohort. And what they wanted to do is look at radiographic change when they're using various drugs. We know that if we get the disease under control, that anything could be a DMARD. If we suppress inflammation, we might improve joint damage. What's different about this study and contradictory to a lot of other things we've heard is that corticosteroids actually were a poor predictor and had more x-ray damage. We could explain it by the fact that only the worst patients got corticosteroids, but if you look at the ULAR guidelines, corticosteroids have been used as an add-on in early RA for a long time in Europe, even though the guidelines are recent. So I really wonder if they're channeling bias or confounding by indication, but it makes us think twice, try to control the inflammation with our proper DMARDs and maybe save the steroids for later. Who knows? Thanks from Runao. Hi, it's Dr. Janet Pope. I'm back at Room Now, ACR 2017. I wanted to talk about interstitial lung disease and rheumatoid arthritis. So there's several uh, abstracts at this meeting, and they're saying things like in about 156 patients, up to one in four of them have ILD, and cytokines are increased, uh, such as MMP3 and some other cytokines. Interestingly, IL-6R isn't increased. But if you really think of how common interstitial lung disease is in our rheumatoid arthritis patients that's clinically relevant, I think it's far lower than that. And I look forward to you having a poll on that and giving us the answer. However, along that vein, there were two studies of looking at, after RA, a billing code of interstitial lung disease. And one seemed to suggest that interstitial lung disease incidence in rheumatoid arthritis, although low, was the same in TNF inhibitors as abadacept. However, there was another study that looked at a large database market scan and some of the large big data and found that abatacept seemed to have less new interstitial lung disease compared to TNFs and compared to some of the other comparators. So I think the word's not out. We do have patients with interstitial lung disease and I think more will come over time. Thank you.
vengan, miren el, el website y, y por favor compártanlo con sus amigos, síganos en Twitter y muchas gracias. El American College of Rheumatology 2017 en San Diego, California. Eh, ha sido un congreso maravilloso hasta el día de hoy, múltiples artículos con información extensa, específicamente en el campo de la artritis psoriática. Eh, estamos esperando con ansias eh, los, los nuevos guidelines del American College of Rheumatology y el National Psoriasis Foundation en el tópico de artritis psoriática que van a ser distribuidos esta tarde, así que vamos a estar pendientes a eso. Eh, quiero hablar específicamente de algunos artículos que, que se han publicado en los últimos dos días en el componente radiográfico en la artritis psoriática, específicamente eh, un estudio con Secukinumab, el Future 5 Study, que eh, en ese estudio se incluyeron muchos, eh, 996 pacientes. Es el estudio más grande que se ha hecho hasta el momento en artritis psoriática y luego de... 24 semanas se demostró una disminución en la progresión radiográfica en los pacientes que recibieron sequinumab comparado con placebo. Lo mismo se reportó en dos estudios con, eh, con otros dos agentes. Uno de ellos fue otro inhibidor de la interleucina 17, ixequizumab, y también con tofacitinib, una eh, small molecule um, jack uh, inhibitor. Ambos demostraron eficacia en reducción de... Eh, progresión radiográfica hasta 52 semanas. Eh, bueno, los dos estudios, ambos estudios fueron presentados por la doctora Van der Heide yesterday, eh, en el día de ayer, disculpe, y, y nuevamente eh, muchas noticias en, dentro del campo de la artritis psoriática y específicamente de la, de la inhibición de, de cambios radiográficos. Así que por favor, si desean más información, manténgase al tanto con roomnow.com, eh, vengan, miren el el website y, y por favor compártanlo con sus amigos, síganos en Twitter y muchas gracias. Morning everyone, this is Dr. Julio Gonzalez reporting live from the American College of Rheumatology meeting in San Diego, California. And I'll, um, it's been a great congress so far, especially in the topic of psoriatic arthritis. We've had, we've heard great articles and um, I'd like to continue that trend here. Um, I'd like to report a couple um, papers that have been published, actually three studies on the topic of psoriatic arthritis and, and radiographic progression. The first one is a late breaker that was just presented this morning. It's a future five study um, on secukinumab. This is a very large study, 996 patients that um, were randomized to receive um, either 300, 150 with loading and 150 without loading, 300 with loading of secukinumab. Um, these patients were, around 30% of them were TNF failure, so um, those patients were included in this study. Um, the study was carried out to 24 weeks to monitor structural progression at 16 weeks as expected, and Tegukinimab had better scores as compared to placebo, and at 24 weeks radiographic progression was um, significantly inhibited in Tegukinimab as compared to placebo. Okay, the second study I want to talk about is on another IL-17 inhibitor, this time Ixekizumab. Um, there was another study this time carried out to 52 weeks. This study was presented by Dr. Van der Heide um, yesterday and they showed um, 
that at 52 weeks in both the every two weeks and the every four weeks doses of Ezekizumab, excuse me, um, radiographic progression was um, halted um, significantly. These patients were initially on either placebo or adalimumab and were switched um, to Ezekizumab and then they got the measurements at um, 52 weeks. Um, the third study that I want to talk about on radiographic progression is on tofacitinib. So this is um, uh, a lot of news around this in the field of psoriatic arthritis, and this study was interested in the way, interesting in the way that they had an alimumab arm up to 52 weeks, and they also grouped their patients between um, CRP levels, so patients with high CRPs and patients with low CRPs or normal CRPs. What they did is that they looked at their radiographic data at 52 weeks, and when they what they saw was significant. Um, um, diminishing or, or halting of progression at 52 weeks in the three arms, the TOFA-5 BID, the TOFA-10 BID, and the adalimumab arm. So as expected, up to 52 weeks um, diminished radiographic progression in um, the three studies. So great news in the field of psoriatic arthritis. We keep hearing good things. It's been a great congress for um, in this field, and um, specifically we're anxiously waiting the release of the new American College of Rheumatology and National Psoriasis Foundation um, criteria for psoriatic arthritis today at 1 p.m. So if you're here, make sure to go check it out. And if you want to uh, learn more, make sure to um, go to roomnow.com to get the latest and greatest information as it happens. This is Len Calabrese. I'm coming at you from ACR San Diego. It's been an incredible meeting. I'd like to talk to you for a minute about uh, herpes zoster. Uh, a lot of activity here. We know the risk factors uh, for drugs, particularly the jacotinibs. A lot of this was overshadowed by the introduction of Shindrex, the new GSK uh, killed vaccine uh, coupled to a uh, adjuvant system. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people about it, and we're very excited to use it, but uh, we are cautiously concerned about uh, assessing uh, the potential for adjuvants to aggravate autoimmune disease across the image spectrum. I have no reason to suspect this other than from the data. Uh, I'm looking forward to robust studies uh, on behalf of the company that will explore this and uh, I look forward to uh, uh, offering this to my patients in a sh sense of shared and informed decision-making. Thanks. Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from Dallas, Texas, presenting today for you from ACR 2017 in San Diego, California. I love the plenary sessions. I think that they are the most high yield and they give you a lot of information in very, very small subsets, which is really nice for me. It's digestible. So I just attended a really great plenary session with Dr. Lan Dewey on the safety and efficacy of sustained remission in patients on adalimumab versus placebo. So that's something we all talk about, right? We want to know not only how do we achieve remission for our patients, but can we sustain that remission? And if so, can we do it off of medication? So this study actually is called the Ability 3, if you're interested in more information. And realistically, what they looked at is they had patients who had non-radiographic SPA, so that's using the ASAS criteria, not the New York criteria. And, what, and why is that important? That's important because we are looking at non-radiographic spondyloarthritis, not radiographic spondyloarthritis. So in general, they took 305 patients who had been on adalimumab every two weeks for 28 weeks 
Of those 305 patients who had achieved remission, they then broke it down into a placebo group of 153 patients versus a non-placebo group with continued adalimumab every two weeks, 152 patients. So we looked at a couple of things. Number one, we wanted to make sure that the safety data was still there for the patients. So there were no new safety indications for Humira based on what we'd already known. So that's really important. But we also wanted to know, of the patients who had achieved remission, can we sustain that remission? Well, we found that 70% of the patients who had already achieved remission on adalimumab and who stayed on adalimumab, 70% of those patients did very well, but 30% had flares. So what about the remission group that had achieved it but then had to be off of the medication who were within the withdrawal placebo group? We actually found that only 30% of those patients had no flares. So that's 70% of those patients had flares and could be reintroduced to adalimumab. So here's the caveat to that though. Once they achieved remission, they were taken off of the drug in the withdrawal phase of the study and then they were put back on adalimumab, it wasn't as effective. So it's twofold information. So it goes to show that maybe we do need to reconsider the way that we approach these patients. We need to make sure they hit clinical remission, but it's really important to have sustained remission. And partly, this may be keeping them on drug for the extended period of time. So I hope that you learned something from this session. I know I did. I always send patients and people to plenary sessions because personally, that's where I learned the most bang for my buck. So I hope you enjoy RoomNow.com and keep checking us out for up-to-date information from ACR 2017 in San Diego, California. Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from Dallas, Texas, and I'm coming to you live from ACR 2017 in San Diego, California. So I just saw a really great poster, abstract number 1505, from Dr. Duggum and his group. And they were looking at gender biases for ankylosing spondylitis and particularly patterns of inheritance. So they looked at two different cohorts of 105 HLA B27 positive parent and offspring pairs to look not only at patterns of inheritance, but if there's a gender bias. So historically, we know that we think that mothers really do transmit this disease to patients, um, whether that be male or female offspring. But what we actually found was that the fathers had, an in, had the um, increased rate of transmission to patients. Also interestingly, it seems to be that the sons are more affected in this particular subset than daughters. So this goes against our conventional wisdom. So it seems that not only HLA-B27 positive patients who meet New York criteria for AS, as well as radiographic damage and gender, are also transmitted with a male bias. So I hope you learned something from this. I think that realistically we need to be looking into more inheritance patterns because this challenges our conventional wisdom. So more from ACR 2017 with RoomNow.com, and I hope you're enjoying the coverage. I know I am. Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from Dallas, Texas, coming to you live from ACR 2017 in San Diego, California. There are two things that I really like to talk about when it comes to rheumatology, particularly education, in addition to actual use of ultrasound, um, which is something that I practice in clinical practice as well, but realistically, can we integrate those? So Dr. Sterling West did a fantastic 
year in review update for medical education this week. And something that he found in his study and research in this is that of the 113 rheumatology fellowship programs, these are both adult and pediatrics, that 103 of those programs actually believe that we should be training our, our future rheumatologists with ultrasound, musculoskeletal ultrasound for diagnostics as well as for doing intraarticular injections. But interestingly, when we looked at that data further, um, 30 out of 74, so not all of the programs participated in the second part of the study, but 74 of them said that, wait a second, we don't have a core curriculum. So there's a vast majority of program directors who believe that we should be using musculoskeletal ultrasound as part of our core curriculum for rheumatology, but only 30 out of those 74 and possibly out of 113 programs are actually developing those core curriculums. So I think this is a really important part of what we do in rheumatology. You know, we pride ourselves on being um, innovators and thinkers about things that we can do to improve our patients' quality of life, but also now to improve our fellowship programs. So I encourage you, if you're a program director or if you have any ideas for the supporting program directors, especially if you're the fellows, to develop some of these core curriculums, I think it's really important. You know, this is the wave of the future. It helps us with diagnosis. It helps to ensure we're putting steroids in the right spots. And I think that that's the wave of the future, regardless of reimbursement. So more from moonnow.com. Check us out. We'll be here all week at ACR 2017 in San Diego. Hello, friends. Dr. Akhirkar from Mumbai, India, here at ACR 2017. I was particularly looking at the data about new molecules in psoriatic arthritis. And ACR was really not disappointing in that respect. We have a lot of data about new molecules in psoriatic arthritis here presented. The first molecule on the horizon, tofacitinib. The opal broaden and opal beyond data presented, showing good efficacy in terms of significant difference in the patient-related outcomes. The opal balance study, 36 months data about the safety of tofacitinib, no new safety signals there. And Dr. Van der Heet presented the opal broaden study, a study with active psoriatic arthritis patients, those who are refracted to DBIRDS, TNF-alpha-9, 422 patients, uh, and the study duration of 12 months, more than 90% of the patients did not have any significant radiological progression. I'm sure one year is not that big a duration for radiological progression, but it's the step in that right direction. Coming to the second molecule on the horizon in psoriatic arthritis, exekizumab, another study, a phase three spirit two study data presented, with good efficacy, with significant difference in the patient-related outcomes. Some data about abatacept in psoriatic arthritis, promising data, but, but long way to go for abatacept. Uh, as far as the established molecules are concerned, apremilast, four-year safety and efficacy data with uh, apremilast as monotherapy in psoriatic arthritis, good efficacy with uh, ACR 20, 50, 70 of 68%, 43%, 23% respectively and a PASI 75 and 50 score of 40 and 67 percent respectively. So, so good things as far as apremilast is concerned. And lastly, not to forget, secokinumab, safety data of 7769 patient years of exposure presented here at the ACR. So all in all, as things stand today, good data for psoriatic arthritis and molecules. A lot of things to expect in the future for psoriatic arthritis patients. Thank you.
Hi, I'm Bill Shergi. I'm talking to you from the American College of Rheumatology meeting in San Diego 2017. And just left a very exciting seminar on giant cell arteritis. From uh, the take-home messages from this meeting and this session in particular, giant cell arteritis is really a hot area of interest. We had three great speakers in Drs. Wyand, Carmani, and Grayson who covered the basic pathophysiology, current treatment recommendations, and imaging studies. Uh, these lectures were all superb. Uh, learned some interesting take-home points on the pathogenesis, and one of the really take-home points that I thought about afterwards was that you really are losing privileged sensitivity of the aorta in these giant cell arteritis disorders. And between the combination of increased CD4 cells, leaky portals into the vessels, failure of checkpoints, all lead to the vascular damage. But equally important for the patients in evaluating is what they happen to see in the periphery. And these are diseases uh, manifestations primarily generated by acute inflammatory products from the liver. And this is the PMR type of uh, features that we've come to recognize. Uh, when we move into treatments, certainly steroids have remained the mainstay of uh, treatment, but over the last few months, we've had the first medication actually approved for the treatment of giant cell arteritis in tocilizumab. And this has really come, become a very important topic. But one interesting area that we've come to see is this seems to focus primarily on the acute phase reactants, the PMR type activity. And even Dr. Wyand was a little uncertain as to what is going to happen long term to vascular manifestations and how closely we're going to need to follow these patients. So it's a great addition to our armamentarium. We can control the disorder. We can minimize steroid use. But we still need to follow the patients, particularly for some vascular complications. And there was some sobering data of patients actually having vascular complications five to ten years out from being uh, disease-free. And lastly, uh, what we're certainly looking for uh, in, uh, in a diagnostic arena is imaging modalities over an invasive temporal artery biopsy. And we've been real excited about the ultrasound. Some initial reports on ultrasounds really showed uh, sensitivity and specificities in the 60 to 90 kind of range. But other studies have not come up with this. Also, there's MRI and PET scanning. And these two have very variable sensitivities and specificities. But in the certain study that compared biopsy two imaging modalities, it really appeared that the imaging modalities may help more than the biopsy. And there's current suggestion is if you have a firm diagnosis or a very good-looking diagnosis on an imaging study in a classic clinical presentation, then perhaps you can skip the biopsy entirely. If there is a negative, bi uh, negative ultrasound or other imaging in the setting of a classic clinical history, pursue the biopsy. And if it's a negative imaging and not a classic story, then once again, you're free from doing the biopsy. So uh, with that, uh, I will close and say for more information, go to room now.